Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland Pacific northwest of the United States of America, this beautiful country. Today is the 27th of July and the year is 2020, just to give us a date mark on this. Now, <clears throat> it's going to be episode six of my discussion about aging. And recall what we've been doing. We laid the groundwork for what we mean by cellular senescence. Haven't gotten much at all into the real cell physiology. We're going to do that when we, particularly when we talk about skeletal muscle and we talk about neuron degeneration. But right now we're just laying the groundwork. We talked about the contrasting potential for immortalization of cells and that's under the auspices of cancer. And then we got right back into discussing some of the um, primitively understood associations of biochemical systems to the aging process. And we got right into reactive oxygen. We spent most of our time on that last couple of episodes. Particularly, I was talking about the dehydrogenases and the oxygenases and the oxidases and redox metabolism. Um, and I think we laid a decent groundwork on there. I'm now going to um, continue on this. It's still a general set of lectures to really lay down the foundation about this um, huge opus of work on geriatric medicine. And I told you last time, I think I mentioned briefly, that we do have a National Institute on Aging. <clears throat> and about half its budget actually is on uh, Alzheimer's disease research. So obviously that's a major um, concern because as people age, every five years over the age of 65, for people that are susceptible to it, and only about 40% or so of, of anyone that's ever been studied after the age of 65 and 70 are even susceptible to Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> but every five years after you turn about 70, uh, your chances of getting Alzheimer's disease almost doubles. So it's a very serious neurodegenerative disease. And we know a lot about it. And even to this date, I can't tell you that Alzheimer's disease is associated with the aging process. That is, I don't know that it enhances aging. I can only tell you that Alzheimer's disease is extremely rare until you get much older. But that there are a lot of people, and it seems to be a genetic association, that never get Alzheimer's disease. They do get cognitive decline. And that can vary anywhere starting in the 50s or 60s, you know, still sort of in the middle, late middle ages. Uh, but some people don't have uh, what could be looked at as frank cognitive decline until well into their 80s or even into their 90s. So these things aren't necessarily collinear. So, okay, um, I'm going to just get started right now. What I want to talk about today I just wanted to give you that kind of overview of where geriatric medicine is. A lot of the emphasis is on um, not so much the process of aging in humans, but what diseases linger and then become amplified as humans age. So I told you that biological aging was plastic. And I told you that part of that had to do with the immune response and the epigenetics. Um, 
I want to also tell you that there have been successful modifications of the intrinsic rates of aging, I guess I'd call it. And these are all been done in rodent models. So we really don't have anything other than observational analyses uh, on human studies. We've never done randomized controlled trials to try to see if we can really develop therapies, pharmacotherapies, or even uh, lifestyle or, or uh, nutritional therapies that specifically um, target whether or not aging can be ameliorated. Uh, we have done a lot of observational studies on aging, and clearly it is a nonlinear response. And not all people age at the same rate, clearly. So the rodent models have done a lot for us to understand reactive oxygen species. Uh, we understand a lot about neurodegeneration, about um, muscle senescence, also known as sarcopenia in uh, animal models, but we don't have that necessarily translated into human um, studies, at least not at the level that I would call biochemical, which as you know, I consider to be the real foundational science in anything that's biomedical. It's biochemical. I mean, you could argue that genetics is a foundational um, discipline. It is, but genetics, to really understand it once it's functioning in a living system, you have to understand how genes function and how they're expressed. Once you start talking about gene expression and the multiplicity of things like splicing and epigenetic modifications of the level of gene expression, <clears throat> the turnover of genes, mutations of genes, really that's all biochemical analysis. So I think I'm on firm ground there by saying foundation in, in biomedical research is really biochemistry. So there has been a lot of argument. There's an added value for targeting the underlying process of aging itself. That's why we'd go to animal models rather than looking at diseases of aging to get a handle on whether or not there is such a thing as what's called the longevity dividend. Can we, is there a dividend to increasing lifespan? Because you know what happens? The longer people live, like if you have advanced cardiovascular disease, or you get a tumor and you're in your 80s and you have surgery and you get into remission on any one of a number of chronic diseases that can kill you, um, the lifespan may have been increased two years, three years, maybe five years even. Um, but there really are no good comparative studies because once one individual gets that uh, surgery or gets that major alteration in metabolism, I say heavy duty pharmacotherapy, you can't take them off of that. You can't remit the surgery and say, okay, what would happen if you didn't have that surgery in terms of how many years you live? Um, but I can say that most people that are well up into their 80s who have surgeries or who or go on um, massive um, pharmacotherapy or even massive um, lifestyle changes, their lives may be increased in terms of longevity, but whether or not their lives are of a higher quality, that might be a different story. It might be well a different story. And there's a lot of ethics involved in that. And I will talk about that later on. So you can ask yourself at the beginning, are the potential logical flaws in the concept of a longevity dividend? I want you to keep that in mind. So I told you that there's, a, there's this aspect of, Geroscience, or, you know, the science of aging. 
And we can talk about translational geroscience. Researchers tentatively have identified interventional strategies in which there's evidence for attenuating or even in some cases um, blocking the aging process. Blocking, I won't say reversing, although you'll hear that. It's, I don't, I've never have seen any reversing literature, even in the rodent models or even in the C. elegans models. But you do have a blocking of the aging process. Now, you don't make immortal animals by no means. You still, it's only a longevity dividend, right? You get an increase, okay? Now, <clears throat> there are areas of promise and there's a lot of interest in getting what is called an effective intervention to delay aging. But you have to ask the question to determine, ultimately, is there a broad utility? You ask the question, is there a broad utility for a particular kind of intervention for increasing aging? Um, is it easy to implement? Can it be effective when it starts in midlife or later, whatever the intervention is? And what about the benefits outweighing the risk? And that's what I was trying to talk to you about having surgeries and having a massive pharmacotherapy, for example, late stage cancer. <clears throat> now, dietary restriction is something I brought way at the beginning of this article lectures. I'm just going to call it DR. It has been the most studied in humans uh, as an intervention for delaying aging. But it has been heavily studied in the rodent models. Now, although it's not universally effective, there is a, at least a, a, a plurality of studies that have documented significant increases in lifespan and health span when DR is applied in those lab models, okay, in mice. Now, we've even done conducted studies in non-human primates, and it seems to have a similar increase in lifespan and health span. But remember, I'm saying it's not universally effective, okay? That means that you have a limitation on the studies. In fact, limited studies indicate important health benefits, and they do include what looks like a, a repeal of some of the risk factors for disease in the human population for those who practice rather severe dietary restriction, DR. When I say rather severe, I mean whatever calories you're normally used to consuming. I'm not going to give a number to it. I'm sure most of you know that do anything with nutrition. But if you cut those calories in half, whatever they are, that's where we talk about starting to see real effects. So we're talking about people that really slim down and really have a restricted diet. So although DR is not a, necessarily a viable translational approach, at a population level. Research in the area has uh, made for some pretty interesting, um, what do I want to say, uh, arguments for considering this as an alternative approach to increasing the longevity dividend. And I mean, alternative as opposed to um, all of the other dividends that have been tried, like no smoking, no drinking. I'm, I'm, I agree with both of those. No drinking alcohol, that is. And really restricting the amount of carbohydrate in your diet. Now, total calories depends on how much energy you consume. So there are some small molecule 
um, dietary restrictive mimetics, and these include drugs that work as mTOR inhibitors. Um, and there are also some that work on, on the very first oxidase that's in the uh, electron transport chain. And I mentioned that one in a minute. However, when you realize these are limiting studies and they're not universally effective, that means that all that we have learned so far about dietary restriction actually fails a major feature of categorical logic. And that's called the resonating feature of categorical logic. It has to resonate through the population that we just don't see that. Okay. Now, exercise has also been touted. Notice I separate that from dietary restriction. So there's a large body. I know I love you. I know you love that pun. There's a large body of literature or a corpus, a large corpus of literature, which provides some evidence that the health benefits of exercise are consistent with the enhancement of a health span. Health span notes. However, there's a poor compliance with exercise, especially in the elderly, and that makes for that intervention to be challenging at the very least to apply. Thus, there's a very high interest in developing pharmacological interventions because compliance for taking a pill, unfortunately, is much higher than compliance for dietary restriction or for exercise regimens. So poor compliance, that means it's not a categorical, nor can it serve as a premise for exercise since it relies on a variable that isn't fixed or demonstrated. It's another categorical logical error to say that exercise always gives you an increased health span. And likewise, if there's a high interest in developing interventions, I might offer that where does this high interest come from? And therefore, is there a justification for it? Where knowledge is a justified true belief, is this set up for any knowledge base equivalent, right? I would argue at this point now. Okay. So here are two drugs, two pharmacological agents, metformin and acarbose. So metformin and acarbose are actually anti-diabetic drugs. Now we know that diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is very common with obesity, extremely common. And we know that over half, maybe up to 70% of people that are anywhere from the ages now all the way down to their 30s up until their 70s, mid-late 70s, uh, in the West are obese, according to the BMI, okay? That is the statistic that's out there. So obesity is a major epidemic in this country, far more major epidemic than any disease, even those caused by etiologic agents like viruses, bacteria, or fungi major epidemic and obesity of course is a epidemic that can be easily cured the cure is using your free will and eating less eating less always stops obesity okay pretty much a collinear response there i won't say that it's an epidictic meaning that it's necessarily true but it comes really close to you decrease your intake of calories, you will lose weight. If you do it chronically over your lifespan, it'd be very difficult for you to become obese. Exercise also plays a role. Okay, so let's talk now about these drugs again. 
In a non-randomized retrospective analysis, diabetic patients taking metformin have reduced mortality compared with diabetic patients that don't take metformin. And therefore what? Because diabetes is a disease that decreases lifespan, people live longer. So if you take metformin and you're a diabetic, you'll probably live longer than if you're a diabetic and you don't take metformin. But it doesn't mean you'll live longer than a non-diabetic, right? So you got to, in other words, the drug does seem to have a positive effect on decreasing some of the symptomology of diabetes. Since diabetes can cause you to have a shortened lifespan because of the morbidity of diabetes, cardiovascular disease and cancer are two major diseases that are linked to obesity. Obviously, if you have a drug that can knock down or suppress diabetes, you'll see an increase in lifespan, but it's not like a massive increase. So don't go out and ask your medical doctor for metformin because you think it's gonna make you live longer. That's not the case, okay? even if you're a diabetic. There's another compound called acarbose. One of the uh, distributors called that glucobay. Um, and that works a little bit like Orlistat because it acts locally in the GI tract. And what acarbose does is delay carbohydrate digestion in the GI tract. It does so by reducing basically subsequent intestinal glucose absorption rate. Okay. So let's get into a little bit about this compound, acarbose. Comes from a paper published when this was really uh, the height of its uh, analysis in humans. Paper published in uh, 2012 in the journal Diabetes, Metabolic Syndrome, and Obesity, Targets and Therapy. That was volume five, page 357 to 367, where I read this paper. Let me tell you now what it says alpha glucosidase inhibitor. That's what acarbose is. It's an alpha glucosidase inhibitor. So any limit, any limit dextrans, anything that's a disaccharide or polysaccharide has an alpha gluco, uh, alpha 1,4 glycosidic bond. Okay. If it's a beta 1,4 or beta any bond, you're not going to be able to break that down because you don't have enzymes would break down, break down beta-1,4 or beta-1,6 glucosidic bonds. Those are the kind of bonds you find in the uh, carbohydrate called cellulose and in hemicellulose. So cellulose and hemicellulose has green leafy uh, tissues such as what plants produce. We don't digest that because we don't have beta-gluconases. Now, Ruminants can digest that as polygastric animals, like my friend, who I have a lamb out in my pasture. Uh, he has no problem digesting uh, hay, but people can't digest hay. People can digest alpha 1,4 linkages. Okay? So, acarbose is an alpha 1,4 glucosidase inhibitor. Therefore, it's going to slow down the absorption of anything more than a monosaccharide. Okay. So, it's been used for long time and it basically treats hyperglycemia. It has sort of a unique mode of action. It works in the GI tract. It basically, well, it basically acts as a um, competitive inhibitor for those enzymes, okay? Now it's because of the structure of uh, this acarbose in that it has a nitrogen atom right where it should have another carbon atom and therefore you don't have 
an alpha 1,4 glycosidic bond. You have a, basically an alpha bond to a nitrogen atom rather than another carbon atom. Okay, so that's basically the the the, the bottom line with the mode of action for this compound. It is used because it has pretty decent tolerability for the management of type 2 diabetes. And it's even been looked at for pre-diabetics, just people that are starting to gain a lot of weight. This goes way down to youngsters now in high school. It's really sad. Okay. So what does Acrobos do? Well, first of all, it has direct effects. It drops pretty, pretty precipitously fasting blood glucose levels. Okay, so that's a really key feature. So blood glucose in general and a postprandial blood glucose and postprandial fasting blood glucose levels are kicked way down directly by a regular pharmacotherapy using Acrobos, okay? Now, Acrobos also has an effect on insulin and pro-insulin or pre-pro-insulin secretion. Not so much on the secretion, but on the levels of circulating insulin and pro-insulin. Because it inhibits glucose absorption and glucose triggers insulin production in the pancreas because, it, because of its effect on glucose, you get a decrease in circulating insulin and pro-insulin. Now, you know, in type 2 diabetes, you have hyperinsulinemia, which causes insulin what? Tolerance, right? So, and then ultimately insulin resistance meaning you have a lot high levels of circulating insulin and type 2 diabetes, but it has no effect, right? So if you decrease the amount of circulating insulin and pre-pro-insulin before it goes through, it's what? That's right, proteolytic conversion to insulin, which I talked about way back when. We're talking about proteases or convertases. See how this, all this stuff just comes together. Basically, biochemistry commingles with itself. If you know biochemistry, you basically know everything you need to know. All right, now, what I want to say about Zacharose, so it, it, it also directly, because it works through glucose, maybe you could call it indirect, but it's almost a direct response because insulin is secreted because of the presence of glucose in the serum. So it knocks down insulin secretion okay, because it's not stimulated. Um, it has a lot of other effects, though. It decreases, okay, here you go, plasminogen activator inhibitor one, inhibits the amount of that. And that's because it has a role playing in the convertase reactions I just talked about. It also decreases CRP, right? That's a really important compound that you see in diabetes, that's C-reactive protein. Um, it has a negative effect on circulating free fatty acids, it drops it, has a negative uh, that is, it decreases circulating triacylglycerol. It has a good effect on endothelial function. And it has a, because of that, it decreases in some studies hypertension. And of course, I told you that indirectly because of the insulin, it drops insulin resistance. So it's a pretty good anti-diabetic drug. Now it's been suggested that it could be used for decreasing aging. And you can see why. If you have a diabetic and you ameliorate or remit the diabetic symptoms, and these are some of the diabetic problems here, it's also a hyperinflammation response with diabetes. For example, if you study the secretion synthesis and the accumulation of NF-kappa-B, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine uh, transcriptional activator as well as um, activator of, of the immune system, um, 
in general, innate immune system as well as the acquired immune system. So lymphocytes are also controlled by NF-kappa B. Um, Acrobos tends to decrease the amount of NF-kappa B. So it decreases inflammation. All these things are positive for decreasing what normally would be considered the vagaries of tissue damage over time. And that includes aging, you see? So it, it all falls together into a paradigm. So what about metformin? Metformin's made, okay, so I just talked about acrobos, okay? Now what's metformin do? Main site of action is in the liver. Okay, remember acrobos is gonna be in the intestine, right? Metformin's main site of action is the liver, it reduces excessive sugar release seen in type two diabetes indirectly because its main effect because it comes from a family of drugs called the biguanides, is it decreases hepatic gluconeogenesis. Okay, now how does it do that? In a really cool way. And I know you're gonna get this because you are becoming an intermediary metabolic biochemist. Now, what it does is that metformin blocks the very first complex in the electron transport chain. That's the NADH oxidoreductase enzyme. Okay? Now, why would that in itself block gluconeogenesis? Well, of course, you know why. And I'm just, I'm just going to remind you here. Well, that's because during gluconeogenesis, you're synthesizing glucose in the liver from non carbohydrate precursors, right? So that means you're making it from amino acids, from the uh, transamination of amino acids. So you make the alpha keto acids that run into the TCA cycle, ultimately ending up in the production of malate and oxaloacetate, that making it into the cytosol because of the functioning of the malate aspartate shuttle. And then that oxaloacetic acid can then be used to reform phosphoenolpyruvate and then from PEP, you can make glucose using the pathway of gluconeogenesis. Now, that pathway requires energy, requires ATP. Gluconeogenesis requires ATP. How do you get ATP? <laughs> By NADH oxidation. I just told you that, right? You oxidize NADH, you run through the electron transport chain, you have chemiosmotic proton pumping through the proton pumping ATPs in the endomitochondrial membrane. Um, this should just be chapter and first litany to you now. It should be scripture, actually, right? Um, if you block that, you make less ATP, you can't make glucose. So see how metformin blocks conneogenesis because it blocks NADH oxidoreductase, the first complex in the electron transport chain. See, that's what, that's, you're becoming a, a metabolic biochemist, you see? Now you understand that. So I don't want to get into the details of metformin today because we're running a little bit late because I gave you that long prolegomena. But I did it on purpose because I want you to keep your interest up with my uh, aging lectures because I'm going somewhere, as I always do, and where I'm going is to try to get you well healed and understanding what we understand about senescence and about how diseases play a role coming in and coming out of senescence. In other words, some diseases seem to promote an aging of certain tissues and have a pretty strong associative effect. I won't say a causative effect, just a correlative effect. But also some diseases arise from aging. 
okay? So I want you to understand that this is a good, solid, complex biochemical story. And not something just simple and straightforward. They're just all reactive oxygen. If we can block that with a lot of ascorbic acid, like our old buddy Linus Pauling said, he didn't live to be in his 90s, uh, everything will be fine. I'm sorry to tell you that's not the case. Even if you overdose on vitamin C and vitamin E, you're not necessarily at all going to increase your lifespan, okay? It has a lot to do with how that those compounds are metabolized as uh, coming in as vitamins like that. And I can talk about that some other time, but I just want to give you a good biochemical detail about metformin next time, because I know it's still a very, very often prescribed drug in, in diabetes. So for now, I'm just going to try to remind you, and I am really going to remind you here, please go to my Patreon page and please consider donating to Authentic Biochemistry. I could really need your, need, use your help here for some funding, and it would be great if you could do that. Um, anything you can sign up for is much appreciated. Um, second thing I want to tell you is that please go to iTunes or wherever you download this podcast and rate this podcast, subscribe to it and rate it. And please give me a five stars because the more stars I get, the more it'll move up. And the more I can do, the more I can deliver. For example, maybe I can add music to this. Wouldn't it be cool to listen to some Mozart or Beatles when I introduce or when I leave? course it would because you know that it's in my head a lot well even when I'm lecturing all right I'm gonna stop now this is Dr. Dan Guerra saying bye for now